James, as the pastor said, chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. That's James 1, verse 19. We're going through the end of the chapter. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the understanding of this precious portion of Scripture for our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. We'll be focusing this morning on James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And uh, let me just read that passage for us one more time so it's really fresh in our minds. I'm reading from the ESV Bible. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orf orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, I don't know how many of you here are familiar with a video that's on YouTube that's gone viral. It's called, I Hate Religion, But I Love Jesus. Now, it's a poem, and when I say it's, it's, it's gone viral, it means that that's in a short period of time, it has been viewed over 18 million times. And the poet starts off by saying, what if I told you that Jesus came to abolish religion? And then he goes on to say, if religion is so great, why does it start so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Now, the Apostle Paul warned against man-made religion in Colossians 2.23 when he says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So every other religion besides Christianity, is a man-made religion. Yes, religion does cause war. It does so because man has declared war on God, and in that war against God, man fights against himself, and man fights especially against those who call on the name of Christ. And the poet is also right in the sense that, that we should be feeding the poor. We should. That is something that should be a focal point of what it means to be a Christian. That's what James tells us here this morning. But he goes on to say that Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. One's a work of God, but one's a man-made invention. Now that sounds nice and pious, 
But we need to ask the question, is that true? Is what he is saying really true? Are Jesus and religion really at opposite ends of the spectrum? True, every religion of the world is to be hated, except one. And true, every religion of the world is, is, is to be hated and is man-made, or even worse, is demonic, except one. Now, when something is as popular as that video is on YouTube, there's going to be critics and there's going to be people that are going to, that are going to come up and make their own videos criticizing it. And there's all kinds of, of other um, poems that are there, done as a parody of this poem and, uh, and, or, or they're just to criticize the poem. But there's one thing that, that is, is pretty common is that they, they pick up on the faulty logic of what this poet has said. Christianity is a religion. It is a religion. Jesus didn't come to abolish religion. He came to establish the one true religion. So then that leaves us with an important question. What then is religion? What is religion? Religion has been described as the external manifestation of a relationship to God, which is rooted in the heart and expressed in our lives. Now, this is true whether you follow Christianity, the true religion, or any one of the, the, the countless false religions. True religion is, is rooted in true love for God, and it reveals itself in a life that re increasingly reflects the character of God. False religion, however, is rooted in rebellion against God and in a life that does not resemble Him. But with all the false religions that are out there, how do we know that we have the true religion? How do we know that, that Christianity is right? Well, I need to ask another question that is even more important because we're going to take for granted the fact that, that we are here. I, I believe that you, you're making a statement that you think that Christianity is true, that, that Jesus Christ is truly God, that he really did come to die for our sins and to take the punishment that we deserved and to rise again on the third day. I'm, I'm going to just take that for granted that we do accept that here. But we want to ask an even more important question. How do we know that the true religion has us? How do we know that we are truly Christians? James is very clear here about the nature of true religion versus false religion. Remember, that is why he wrote this letter, to expose false religion and to reinforce true religion. And there's a logical progression here. James spoke about the new birth in verses uh, 18 to 19a, and then to growth in godliness in 19b to 25. And then here in 26 and 27, he talks about the fruit of the new life. He talks about what a life of, of a true believer is going to look like. So how do you think, or how do you know that you are following the true religion? It is when your life is growing more and more like God. Because after all, if you are a Christian, you have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to happen. By the nature of the new birth, you will look less and less like what you used to look like and more and more what Jesus looks like. 
If you are really a believer, James says, your life will be characterized by certain things. There are some things that you will do and other things that you will not do. Some things that you will do less and less and other things that you will do more and more. Now, Alec Motyer picks up on the fact that earlier in the chapter, James described for us the character of God. We see in verse 18 that God is the giver of his life-producing word. We also see in verse 17 that, that every good gift comes to us from above, that he is our Father in heaven who never changes. We also see um, that, that God is, is going to care for us as his needy children in that. And then therefore, if we are going to reflect God, we will also be caring for the needy. True Christians will try to meet the needs of the poor. They will, but because they are chips of the, off the old block, so to speak. But God is also holy. He is completely separate from evil. Verse 13. So Christians will also be, will be characterized by careful avoidance of those things that dishonor God. We no longer want to do the things that displease Him out of love for Him, not trying to earn our salvation, but because of the new birth, our desires have changed. And we also see that, that God brought us forth by his life-giving word. By his life-giving word. We see that Jesus Christ is the word become flesh. And so Christians will be characterized by their words. Montoya also identifies the fact that, that these three traits are so intrinsic to the Christian character that James makes them the central point of his letter. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 26, he, he identifies the mark of caring ministry. And then in three chapters, one, verse, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, he focuses on controlling the tongue. And then in 3.13 to 5.6, he focuses on living a holy life. So those three characteristics are crystallized in verses 26 and 27, what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, we're going to be expanding on those as we work our way through the book of James. But we can see here a summary, a summary of those three things. So Christians will be known by what they guard. Those who follow true religion will guard their words, they will guard the weak, and they will guard their ways. Christians will guard their words, guard the weak, and guard their ways. Now, this list is not meant to be exhaustive, but it is meant to be representative. Obviously, things like, like prayer and scripture reading are a vital part of true religion. But James is focusing on these three characteristics that really sum up what Jesus taught in the Great Commandment. That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the great commandment. And we'll see that those three things are reflected in these characteristics. So in James 1, 26 and 27, we see that the, those who practice a true religion will bear certain fruit, and that fruit will bring forth glory to God. So first of all, they guard their words. 
Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So it's possible then to think, to really think, to be convinced that you are a Christian when your religion is actually worthless. Now there's people all over the world who are very zealous for their religion. People make vows of poverty for religion. They make vows of of celibacy for religion. They might even blow themselves up and blow others up for their religion. But it's all worthless. It's of no eternal benefit. In fact, it's actually going to add to their condemnation. Because there is only one true religion. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone that men can be reconciled to God. But it's not just those who follow Buddhism or Roman Catholicism or Islam who are deceived. There are people in Christian churches all around the world who are deceived. There are people who are sitting in Bible-preaching churches every week who think that they are legitimately saved when they're not. Can you imagine having been to church every Sunday for the past 25, 30, or more years and then to leave this life only to go to eternity in hell? Can't imagine anything worse. Because you see, if you are in a church that preaches the Bible, then you are also hearing the gospel week in, week out. And you have added to your condemnation. You've added to your culpability because you've rejected the truth again and again and again. But I trust that is not the case for most of the people sitting here this morning. I trust that that most of us here this morning really are truly born again, that we really do have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But again, the way that you are going to know that is by the fruit of your life. Now, we all fall short. Remember, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you can't do that for one second apart from God's grace in you. And when you fall short, Christian, you go to the cross. You let your, sin, you let your sinfulness show you how much you need the blood of Christ. You are convicted by your sin, but you are not condemned by your sin. But again, there are people who think that they are religious, but they are deceiving themselves. And we saw a couple of weeks ago how having the right words isn't good enough. Hearing the scriptures preached again and again is not good enough. It's not good enough unless it actually produces an effect in your life. We need to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. For some people, hearing of the Bible preached, it's like water off a duck's back. 
It washes over them, but it never washes them. They're never changed. But likewise, it's not enough to be a speaker of the word. You also have to be a doer of the word. That's why James warns, warns teachers so strongly in chapter 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Brothers and sisters, that scares me. And I hope by God's grace it, it scares me into repentance when I sin. Because I don't want to, after having preached to others, have my faith be made shipwreck. And I, I really, I say this repeatedly, but I really covet your prayers that I would stand firm to the end. But can you think of anybody else in the Bible whose religion was worthless? The Pharisees. The Pharisees had all of the outward forms of solid religion. They taught a lot of the right things. But Jesus warned the, the crowds and his disciples in Matthew 23, 2 and 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey everything that they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Now the world jumps all over people who don't practice what they preach. They recognize it as hypocrisy. You probably heard people say things like, he talks a good game, or put your money where your mouth is, or don't write checks with your mouth that your body can't cash. You see, the world recognizes the hypocrisy in saying one thing and doing another. Words are very, very important as a barometer to tell us what is going on in our hearts? When I was a kid and somebody insulted you, you'd say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Do you guys, do kids still say that? We're going to say, is that really true? We would say it, but I didn't really believe it. It hurt to be insulted then, and it still hurts to be insulted now. We have so much power in our tongues to hurt people. That's why James says in chapter 3, 6, that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And he says in verse 7, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Isn't that a bit harsh? To say your tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison? Well, I really don't think it is because the Bible says that it is. People say that you are what you eat. But really, you are what you speak. You are what you speak. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when we say something sinful, what's really happening is the sin that's in our heart is bubbling up out of our hearts and bubbling out of our mouths. That's why when somebody is, is drunk and they say something, it's not just because they're drunk. That's not the alcohol talking. That's their heart talking without the filter attached. What's really happening is just being exposed. And likewise for us, when we say things that dishonor God or we say things that dishonor people, the sin that is in our hearts 
is being revealed. That's precisely the point of James 3, 1 to 12. Does a spring for, for flow, sorry, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Again, that's the same point of James 1.26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. So what we say reveals whether we are truly saved or not, whether we have been genuinely converted. Now, I want to be very careful here because all of us have sinful things that, that come out of our mouths. But let me ask you this. Do you realize, do you personally realize how dangerous your tongue is? Now, I'm not talking here about, about general and abstract principles. I'm being very specific. Can you think of times in the last day or the last week or month when you have hurt other people with your words? Maybe that even happened in the car on the way to church this morning. But how do you respond when that happens? We acknowledge that each one, each one of us does it sometimes. But how do you respond? Does it grieve you? Do you strive against that? Do you pray that the Lord would change your heart so that you would change what you say? And I remember once as a, as a new believer, it seems I've got so many stories from when I ride my bike, but anyway, this is another bike story. As a brand new believer, I was riding along the road, minding my own business, and a car came really close. I mean, I was probably maybe not even a year old in the Lord, and a car came really close to me and, and scared me, scared, scared me quite powerfully. And the Lord's name actually slipped out of my mouth as a swear word. I took the Lord's name in vain. And that shocked me so much that I actually stopped my bike. And it hurt. It hurts me now even to say that. That's almost 19 years ago, that I would use God's name as a swear word. But how do you respond when you say things that dishonor God? Why is it that I could be so grieved about that, but not be grieved when I'm on my knees praying and I'm daydreaming and I'm not really thinking about God? Because that is dishonoring God with my mouth too. Or why is it that it doesn't grieve me when I say hurtful things to people? The way that, that I was grieved there when I took the Lord's name in vain. What about you? Does, it, does that grieve you to your heart? Does it grieve you enough that you confess your sin to God and that you confess your sin to the other person asking their forgiveness? John said in, John, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is faithful not just to forgive us, 
but God is also faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you are a, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you, changing your desires and making you want to honor God by what you say, to love Him and to love others with your words. Remember, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. So when I say something that I shouldn't say, it's because I don't love the Lord as I should. When I say something that I shouldn't say, it's because I don't love the Lord as I should. And my lack of love for God is bubbling up out of my heart in my words. And it's the same that's true for you as well. It's a lack of love for God, and it's a lack of love for each other. And we all do it too often. But what are you going to do with that? Remember, you can't change your ways. You can't. Only God can change your ways. You can put your hand over your mouth. You can stuff a gym sock in your mouth. You can cut your tongue out. But it's not going to change your heart. You need God to change your heart. There's a story about C.H. Spurgeon that's, uh, that's kind of humorous. I, I wouldn't recommend doing it. I certainly wouldn't want to try it. But um, there's a woman that came up to him after one of, the service, one of the services. And I guess this woman was kind of notorious for having kind of an acerbic tongue. And she walked up to Spurgeon after the service and she, and she said, Sir, your tongue offends me. So he went to his office and he got some scissors and he came and he, he took his tie and he snipped and he cut his tie off and then handed the scissors to the woman and said, Ma'am, your tongue offends me. That's how serious we need to be about our tongues. Our tongues are a deadly poison. A deadly poison. We need to ask that the Lord would change our hearts so that our tongues would honor God. So does it grieve you when you speak to your, life, your wife in an unloving way? Or when you say something disrespectful to your husband? Or when you're short-tempered with your kids? Again, do you confess that as sin? Do you confess it to God and confess it to them and ask God's forgiveness and ask the person's forgiveness as well? We also need to be careful in the way that we use God's word. Sometimes we could be saying the right words. We could be saying God's word, but in the wrong way. Because remember, even Satan used God's word to attack Jesus. Some people use God's word like a hammer, smashing everything in their path. But we need to remember that, that the, sword, the word is the sword of the Spirit. It's a powerful weapon, yes, but we need to be skilled in the way that we use it. The, the sword of the Spirit is to be wielded with precision. It's the right word at the right time, a word fitly spoken in due season. So it's not just the words but when and how and why that matters.
But again, we all have these moments. Each one of us fail in these areas. But if those moments characterize your relationships, then there is a real problem in your relationship, not just with the other person, but with your, pro with your problem is ultimately in your relationship with God. At worst, you're deceiving yourself and your religion is worthless, but at best, you need to repent and go to the Lord. Now, maybe some of you are being convicted right now. And if so, that's good. It's my prayer that, that, that this would actually help us, help each one of us to change and be more godly in what we say. I know that, that I've been convicted this week about my words. And even as, as I wrote down these words, I had to go to the Lord in, in repentance again for my words. But again, 1 John 1, 9, that God is not only faithful, but he will also cleanse us. He will forgive us and he will cleanse us. So we need to pray that the Lord would change our hearts for his glory. Remember that if you are a Christian, you have a new heart. I preached a sermon on this quite a while ago, several months ago. If you're a Christian, you're dead. So live like it. The old man is dead. We are new men and new women in Christ. But you also have the Holy Spirit changing you and making you more and more like Jesus. But if you remember, I, I talk about this quite a bit. There's a principle in Scripture of putting off sinful behavior and putting on righteous behavior. Turn with me, please, for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, start in... Um, in uh, verse 20, 22, Ephesians 4, 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul here presents a list of behaviors that we are to put off and a, a list of behaviors that we are then to put on. But then in, in 429, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So put off corrupting talk, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So put on edifying speech. So as the Spirit empowers you to do that, put off ungodly speech and put on godly speech. The psalmist writes in Psalm 141, 3 and 4, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company with men who work iniquity. Let me not eat of their delicacies. So we ask the Lord to put a guard over our mouths. We need to do that by his grace and for his glory. The next one he talks about here is to guard the weak. To guard the weak. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. So James has shown us what true religion isn't. And now he's going to show us what true religion is. He's going to explain to us here, as he does in the, in the following chapter, in chapter 2, 
that that true religion is is demonstrated in the way that we care for other people. If if God guards the weak, which he does, and if we are his children, which I trust we are, then so will we. We will be carefully concerned about the needy. And that is how we will demonstrate true religion to a watching world. If we are God's children, God sent his son while we were sinners. God sent his son to die for our sins. When we were still weak, God died. Jesus died for the ungodly. We were bought forth, brought forth by his word of truth, by his will. So if we're Christians, that is going to be reflected in the way that we care for other people. That God's care for us is so beautiful and so precious to us that we want to pour out care on other people. If God's care is precious to us, then we will care for other people. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, Jesus talked about the end times judgment. And he talks about when when the Son of Man comes, that he's going to divide the sheep from the goats. And he says there in, um, in in verse 36, To the sheep, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And he promises them, he welcomes them into eternal life. But then in 41 and 42, he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Now, it's not that sheep made themselves goats by not feeding the poor. It's that goats proved themselves to prove themselves to be goats by not feeding the poor. They were revealing what was really happening in their hearts. All through the Bible, we see that we are, we are called to care for the needy. To care for the needy. Now, widows and orphans are, are not, again, it's, it's, it's not inclusive. There's many other forms of, of needy people in this culture. Widows and orphans, though, were representative of that group. It goes back into the Old Testament when, when Israel was told to look after the sojourner, the people who, was, who were staying with them because they themselves were sojourners in Egypt. They were commanded again and again to, to care for the needy. In Isaiah 1.12, Isaiah writes, When you come and appear before me, who has required this of you, this trampling of my courts? In verses 16 to 17, he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Again, there's many forms of, of needy besides just widows and orphans. We have the homeless. We have the mentally ill. We have people who are struggling financially in this very church. 
And we will show ourselves to be Christians in the way that we care for their needs. When I was in seminary, I uh, went to hear um, an emergent church speaker preach. His name is Brian McLaren. You might be familiar with him. Now, I already knew enough about Brian McLaren to know that I really wasn't going to like what he said. And I debated in my mind whether I would actually go and hear him because at that point I had a, I'd actually had a homeless guy staying with me who was a brand new believer. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to expose him to Brian McLaren's teaching. But I thought I would go anyway and I thought it might be a good opportunity for evangelism. And, um, and then if any issues came up with, with my friend, I would, be, I would be able to talk through them with him. And we got there a little bit late, but I got there in enough time to hear McLaren say that, that the main problems in the world are poverty, oppression, and the environment, and Jesus came to deal with those issues. And I thought, what? Jesus didn't come to deal with those issues. He came to deal with sin. Yes, he dealt with with poverty. Yes, he healed people's infirmities, but his primary mission was to die for his people. And so I, I felt I needed to say something, and with, with great fear and trepidation, when we had, there was a, a Q&A time, and, and so I, I stood up, and, and, and this is what I said. I said, you've done a good job of talking about how we can image Christ in the world by caring for the needy. But, but what about the oppressor and the abuser and the racist? What happens to them when they die? And he stopped and looked at me. And I thought, uh-oh. He said, are you proud of yourself for asking that question? And then he turned to the moderator and said, I'm going to have some fun here. And I thought, okay, this is probably not going to be pretty. But he said, I've just talked about all of these important issues. Why is that so important to you? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If I take a homeless person into my home and feed them and clothe them and give them shelter for 40 years, but I don't tell them about Jesus Christ. I don't tell them the gospel. Have I really helped that person? And he said, well, don't you think I care about those things? And I said, frankly, I think you're telling half-truths. And he said to me, well, how do you think it, stand, it feels for me to have you stand there and say that to me? And I said, well, it's not my goal to offend anybody. But let me ask you another question. If you went to the doctor with cancer and the doctor told you that you're healthy when you're not, has that doctor really helped you? And he told me to, to go and sit down. And then he did talk about the rich man and Lazarus. But after the service, um, several, I had, well, one lady turned around and just shot me wicked dagger eyes. She was not pleased with me. But there were a few there that I knew from the seminary, and, and they were encouraged. 
And I actually had a couple of people come up to me after the service who were involved in that church and said, you know, I don't really know if I want to be at a church where they're teaching these things. And I had a friend who'd been downstairs and, and, and over, well, there's an overflow room downstairs with, uh, and there's a, a video monitor. And they said that when, I, when, when McLaren was talking to me, he was so mad that his lip was quivering. And I got to say, you know, I, I'm nobody. Okay, I, I, you know, I, I was a seminary student. This guy is a, is a world-known speaker. But by standing up for the truth there, I just made the true gospel look good. And he made his message and himself look bad. Now, I never could have done that in my own strength. Or if I did do that, when he, was, when he spoke to me, I would, have, I would have said, listen, you, and responded more in, in the flesh back to him in an equal reaction. But God gave me the ability entirely, entirely God, gave me the ability to respond in meekness and humility and to show that the both sides of it. It's like the song that we came saying that, that we give cups of cold water in Jesus' name, but we also give the gospel in Jesus' name. The works that Jesus did, they attested to who he was. They were never meant to be an end in and of themselves. Likewise, our ministry to the poor is never to be an end in and of itself. We do this to demonstrate the love of God to others. We do this to show the power of the gospel. We do this because we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We do this because we are his representatives in this world, seeking to overturn the effects of the fall. And so Gushikin Church, I want to ask us, I want us to be searching and thinking and saying, how can we do this as a church? How can I do this individually? What is our responsibility to be reaching out to the needy? Now, there is one issue that is, is probably, one, probably closer to my heart than any other, and it's the issue of abortion. That we have in this city 30 children killed every single week. What are we going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? We have a responsibility to care for the needy, just as God cared for us. So I pray that in the, in the coming days and weeks and months, that, that as, as you come to us and talk to us, and as we get together as, as a leadership team, that we will find practical ways to reach out practical ways to practice true religion. Finally, and, and quickly, the last point, that true religion also keeps oneself unstained from the world. It keeps oneself unstained from the world. When we love God, we love the things that God loves, and we hate the things that God hates. We need to be so careful because the world wants to get into our hearts and pollute our hearts. The world wants us to distract us with trivial things. 
so that we make ourselves unfruitful for God's service. There's things like music and television and movies that all come with a message. And the message is the world's message. We need to be so careful to keep ourselves unstained from the world. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. We study God's word carefully. We hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against him. And as we do these things, we're transformed by his word again in the power of his spirit. In 1 John 5.8, remember 1 John is, is another letter that was written to demonstrate the, the difference between true religion and false religion. John writes, we know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God sort of because, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And 1 John 3, 9 and 10, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of, a de of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if we are truly born again, we are serious about dealing with sin. We are serious about the danger of the world, and we will carefully guard against it because we don't want it to influence us and cause us to dishonor God. So this morning, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I want to encourage you that if you have felt conviction for some area or areas of sin in your life, go to the Lord in humble repentance. Ask him to forgive you and, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you came here this morning as an unbeliever, as someone who is not truly born again and still under God's condemnation, then take this opportunity to repent. to turn away from your sin, to turn to the cross, that you may be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.